Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. Begin with the remarks on what I would describe as the big four, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, all of which pose unique threats to the United States and our partners. While congressional Republicans have remained loyal to President Trump on most matters, foreign policy is becoming an increasingly notable exception. The Senate voted on January 31st to move forward with legislation opposing President Trump's plan to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan and Syria. That followed a Senate vote in December to end U.S. military assistance for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. The effort died in the then GOP-controlled House but is now likely to resurface. The new Democratic majority also wants to end the funding. My guests today are Michael Rubin, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank, and a former Middle East advisor in George W. Bush's administration, and John Donnelly, CQ's senior defense writer. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So John, let me turn to you first. Can you fill us in on what President Trump is planning for U.S. forces in Syria, where a civil war is still raging, and Afghanistan, where our forces continue to fight the Taliban, the former rulers of the country who sheltered Osama bin Laden? Mm -hmm. Well, in Syria, it began with a tweet, as is often the case with the president, and a video that he released on Twitter in which he said, quote, all of the U.S. forces in Syria would be out, quote, now. Now, since then, and this is again often the case, there's a tweet and then there's the implementation. And the implementation is uh, a little bit more, uh, not quite as rash as the the tweet. And so what we've seen in Syria is actually nothing quite yet. As far as we know, no U.S. troops have, uh, have been extracted. And instead of, quote, now, it is, the officials have said it'll be several months uh, before the, as the process unfolds. And, of course, there are a variety of concerns that we can get into about uh, how this could go badly. Less for U.S. troops than for the people who live there. Uh, the Kurds, in particular, are a concern, and, uh, and, and specifically what Turkey might do to the Kurds uh, because Turkey considers them to be uh, an, an mortal foe. So that's, that's Syria. Uh, in Afghanistan, the president actually hasn't formally announced anything, uh, but he is uh, understood uh, to have tasked the Pentagon to come up with plans for reducing the U.S. force there, which is about 14,000 by about half. I forgot to mention in Syria we have about 2,000 troops. Uh, full stop on Afghanistan because there are negotiations underway now involved between the United States and the Taliban for a peace agreement. The Afghan government, unfortunately, is not yet a part of those talks. 
but the the formula that is that is that is basically being worked on is for uh, the U.S. to agree to pull out all of its troops, and for um, Taliban to agree uh, not to provide ha haven for uh, Al Qaeda or ISIS, uh, which was of course the reason that we went in there to begin with 17 years ago. Okay, and the Senate vote yesterday it was on an amendment written by the majority leader the Republican majority leader, Mitch McConnell. And what would that amendment do? Uh, the amendment is a uh, sense of the Senate a resolution. It is not binding in any way. It is merely basically a, a statement uh, by the United States Senate. But I don't want to minimize its significance because as a political matter, it is, it is quite important that the, as you say, the Republican Senate majority leader didn't just write an op-ed, didn't just give a speech. He wanted the United States Senate to be on record as making this statement. And the statement is that one that the United States should not, quote, precipitously, close quote, withdraw from Syria or Afghanistan. The amendment I plan to propose would expand on the legislation and take a further step to emphasize the need for American leadership in our troubled world, particularly with respect to our ongoing fight against al-Qaeda <coughs> and ISIS in Syria and Afghanistan. And the resolution goes on to uh, talk about some of the risks and some of the concerns. What it's basically saying in a nutshell is, watch it, Mr. President. Uh, you need to be very careful about this. Uh, the outcome of the vote, and by the way, this is a procedural vote to, to advance the measure. I think you indicated in your in your intro. Right, right. The it was a actual vote. the actual vote will be uh, this uh, Monday night. But it's expected that that will be the same. More correct, less, same correct. Result. So it was effectively. It's it's, it's a small matter, but uh, people may be surprised on a Monday night when they hear that there was a vote on this, and they might say, "Wait, wait a minute! I thought the Senate already voted on this." So it seems notable that those voting yes were mostly uh, Republicans, and those voting no were mostly Democrats. Why are Republicans against the president um, and Democrats with him on this? Well, Republicans at large in the country, polls show, are with the president on this. In Washington, the establishment Republicans uh, are a little more hawkish on this. Uh, they are um, actually more educated on the matter, and they are quite concerned about that this could be done wrong. And that explains why the Republicans are willing the to The Democrats, go. all the major presidential prospects voted uh, against the McConnell Amendment and with President Trump. Uh, yes. So the Democrats are split also, e even more split. Uh, you have the right. presidential. They were about 50 50, 50 for and against, where Republicans were united right. uh, in favor of the McConnell Right. Amendment. So you've got the presidential contenders that are worried about appealing to the left flank of the party. Uh, who are want to signal their anti-war bona fides, okay? And then you've got a substantial, basically what I see forming in the center is a consensus, a bipartisan consensus that extracting U.S. troops in large numbers from either of these theaters would be a bad idea, especially if you do it in a, uh, in a, in a way that's not well thought out. And I mentioned in my intro the vote in December to deny U.S. military assistance to Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. Uh, that failed in the House. It never came up in the House last year, but it could come back again. And this all ties back into Saudi Arabia's alleged killing of the dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So what's going on with that? Well, that is sort of uh, on hold for now, um, but we should uh, see, see it again. 
uh, with, with, especially with Democrats in, in charge of the House now. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see it. This, again, is more of a political statement than something with practical consequences because the U.S. military has already stopped refueling Saudi planes, which is their biggest contribution, although they've also contributed logistical and intelligence support. Um, but yeah, I would expect this to come up again. And you're right, it is, it is absolutely interwoven with uh, U.S. congressional concerns about the Khashoggi murder. You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or find it at rollcall.com. I'm going to turn now to Michael Rubin of the American Enterprise Institute. Michael, you wrote this week a piece for the Washington Examiner, critical of the president's move to make peace with the Taliban. Why does it trouble you? That's the same exact deal which the Clinton administration made with the Taliban. And of course, we know the aftermath of that. The Taliban had promised that they would quarantine Osama bin Laden uh, and not allow any training camps to operate. But in hindsight, we know that was false. So the question I would have for the Trump administration and for Zalmay Khalilzad, who is negotiating this agreement on their behalf, is why do you believe the Taliban now, when arguably we're in a weaker position, why do you believe that they're going to uphold that agreement now when they did not the previous time? So there's a U.S.-backed government in Kabul, uh, and we wanted to stay in force. But you're worried that after this peace deal is reached, after the U.S. forces leave, uh, the Taliban could move on Kabul. Well, absolutely. And it's important to remember the generation of the Taliban. The generation of the Taliban, the way they rose up, it's wrong to say the United States created the Taliban because at the time of our support for the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets, the Taliban were three or four years old. Say what you will, Sean, about the CIA, but they're not in the habit of training kindergartners. That said, when it comes to the Taliban, at first they took over Kandahar in 1994 to impose law and order. They promised that they weren't going to go into Herat, which was a Persian city and yet they did in 1995, and there were negotiations ongoing with regard to a joint Afghan coalition government in 1996 when the Taliban decided to just go into Kabul and seize it anyway. It is without doubt the Taliban has the momentum right now, and we need to recognize it. So do you see any point uh, in the foreseeable future at which the U.S. could reasonably withdraw from Afghanistan? Well, I'm afraid that as we see it right now, this is going to be akin to uh, George W. Bush's 2003 mission accomplished moment, or President Obama's 2011 precipitous withdrawal from Iraq, where we are creating a vacuum. And it's actually kind of interesting. We've had this blowback in Congress, if you will, with regard to um, the senators that John just talked about. But we also had testimony from Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, who said that the Islamic State, for example, um, and other forces aren't as down and out in Syria or elsewhere as the president believes they are. Remaining pockets of ISIS and opposition fighters will continue, we agree, uh, we assess, to stoke violence. ISIS is intent on resurging and still commands thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria. The issue isn't the presence. Right, and ISIS's demise was uh, sort of the condition on, on which Trump built his uh, move to withdraw from Syria. Absolutely. Look, I don't want the United States to be engaged in perpetual wars. What I see the problem is, is the vacuum. And the question is, do we have any strategy to fill that vacuum? 
diplomatically in Afghanistan, could we ta ask India to take a larger role? In Syria, is it wise to ask Turkey to take a larger role, especially because many analysts believe that Turkey was the one, the country that enabled the flow of foreign fighters into the Islamic State in the first place? That's why there's such a discord, I think, not only in Congress, but in the intelligence community with regard to the president's stated or tweeted policy. So what was your assessment, Michael, of what happened in the Senate yesterday with the McConnell Amendment? Well, I, I tend to agree with John that on one hand, I would say that both Democrats and Republicans have done a horrible job over the years explaining why the United States is projecting power in the places it is. But on the other hand, there is a realization of the second and third order impacts that could result from a precipitous U.S. withdrawal. So we do need to have a much more serious debate. And that's why I think the Republicans are objecting to the way President Trump is talking about withdrawing from Syria. Uh, and when we see the negotiations in this alleged framework agreement with the Taliban, the way that is proceeding as well. And why do you think the foreign policy uh, area has become the one on which the GOP establishment here in Washington has taken its more, most forceful stand against the president? You know, that's a very good question. I'm just going to push back a little bit, Sean, because it's not just the GOP. Today within Congress, you have factions among within the Democratic Party and also within the Republican Party, um, some of which take a much more isolationist bent, some of which are committed and continue to be committed to liberal interventionalism and so forth. I've always seen the biggest difference between left and right and national security to be um, demonization of power. The left tends to always demonize power. I'm generalizing here, of course. The right sees that power can be used for good or bad. President Obama, of course, came from a left of center background. He saw the projection of U.S. force as basically an arrow in our quiver, which led the United States to engage in perpetual conflict and wanted to draw that back. Many conservatives saw that projection of force to be the literal, or I should say the figurative finger in the dike, which prevented the deluge of chaos. And now when we see the rise of Russia, the rise of China, um, Iranian activity in the region, there's a lot of fear as to who might fill that vacuum. Okay, let's turn to the Syrian civil war. This has been a tough one for American administrations from Obama to Trump. We've limited our role there mostly to fighting the Islamic State, the radical group that has controlled part of Syria, but we haven't really gotten involved in as much in the Syrian civil war, pitting its dictator Bashar Assad against uh, various groups. Should we be more involved? Well, there's a question about involvement and there's a question of the nature of involvement. On one hand, for generations, we've been beholden to Turkey because Turkey is not only a member of NATO, but it has the second most men under arms in NATO. Likewise, we had become dependent on the Indralik Air Base, which is located in southern Turkey. However, in recent years, we have more options than our at our fingertips because a few years ago there was a military exercise in Jordan called Eager Lion. It's an annual exercise. We flew in F-16s, but we never actually withdrew them. So there's F-16s in northern Jordan. Likewise, we've been building up a base in Romania, so we're not so beholden. And lastly, we have something called amphibious ready groups. They Ships like the USS Kearsarge, which just sailed into the 6th and 5th Fleet areas of operation. And so they become basically floating 
bases without being aircraft carriers uh, in a huge technical sense. And so we're becoming less reliant. And the question that President Trump is asking is why do we have to rely on troops on the ground when we have this over the horizon um, ability? And the answer to that question is you often don't have the intelligence gathering capability to react if you're just over the horizon. And also what many people, for example, National Security Advisor John Bolton uh, raised as a concern is by actually having some troops, just a few thousand, on in the rural areas of Syria, east of the Euphrates River, we can physically prevent that land bridge that so many people talk about of Iranian supplies of weaponry to Hezbollah, to Syria, or elsewhere into the Eastern Mediterranean. But do you think we should be trying to, uh, for regime change there? Um, within Syria, this this is the basic issue of um, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. The fact of the matter is, while the late Senator John McCain um, put a lot of faith in the Syrian opposition, when I've been in Syria, and I was in Syria shortly before the civil war began, and then also during the civil war when I spent some time with the Kurds, it seems that the definition of moderate changed to be something that none of us would recognize as moderate. When the definition of moderate is does not engage in cannibalism and eat the liver of your enemies, to me that's not moderate anymore. And so I'm, so we'd risk, we would risk creating the same sort of power vacuum that uh, absolutely exists in it, could but exist in it. The other thing we need to be cognizant of is all the people in this, all the powers in this proxy war because it's not just about Syrians anymore. It's about Russians, it's about Iranians, it's about Turks. Everyone says that they are fighting the Islamic State, but in reality, it has only been the United States and the Kurds that have done so. The Turks say they're gonna fight the Islamic State, but in reality, they bomb Kurds. The Russians say they're gonna fight the Islamic State, but in reality, they bomb the groups in between the extremes of Bashar al-Assad and the Islamic State, because what Bashar al-Assad wants is to create this polarity where you either are with us or you're with the Islamic State, but there's gonna be no option in between. If, if I could just say quickly, oftentimes when I'm, for example, in a place like Iraq, people say, based on propaganda from Iran's Supreme Leader and so forth, the United States created the Islamic State. The Syrian Air Force never once bombed the capital of the Islamic State when they were the only ones fighting in the airspace over Syria. It was only when the United States got involved that we began targeting them, and that's evidence for what I just said. Okay, Michael, so with these disagreements between senators, the intelligence agencies, President Trump, I mean, we, typically we get our foreign policy driven by the administration, but it seems like we're in this uh, chaotic situation. So how do we proceed to be the power we are in the world with no unified voice coming out of Washington? Well, I don't think that anyone who's opposing the president's view right now sees that there's a magic formula for foreign policy and defense. The age of neoconservatism in that way is over. But what those who are opposing and pushing back against the president are saying is just having a presence in the region will pre prevent a precipitous uh, decline into other crises. And that's why they cite, for example, the lessons of the 2011 withdrawal. They want to have a fairly continuous but very small scale U.S. presence on the ground. Don't you think, though, that there has been almost a role reversal in the political parties where for years, for the bulk of 17 years, Republicans had been saying, stay the course, we need to keep our troops engaged, we need to finish what we started, whereas Democrats had been saying, we need to bring our boys home, and now it's kind of flipped. You've got, starting with the president, Republicans saying, it's time to bring our boys home, and, and Democrats saying, hold on, not so fast. Um, I know it's not quite that simple, 100% on each side, but it, isn't, isn't that sort of what's been happening? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right, John, which is why instead of saying the Democrats believe this and the Republicans believe this, I think it's a difference between left and right, um, between conservative and more progressive. That said, what I think we see now within the political parties is really a, the political parties are no longer engines of ideology. They're all about power. The ideological factions are divided within. But what actually scares me is some issues in countries, for example, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Iran become political footballs. It becomes very, very dangerous if there's no broad foreign policy or national security consensus. And that leads us to have radically different foreign policies. Every administration as every new president decides that his policy is going to be whatever the opposite of the last guy was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think, though, that there has been and you saw this in the McConnell vote, the emergence of a, uh, a centrist consensus that is a little bit more stable than what you're hearing from from you know Trump on the one hand or actually the Democratic uh, presidential contenders on the other. Well, I think you're right there. The way I see it is you have the progressive left and you have the more libertarian right who have made common cause. And while I agree with your assessment, what I'm uncertain about is whether that centrist coalition anymore has the power to, to break out and actually direct the foreign policy or whether we're, we're destined for rapid shifts of the pendulum. Mm -hmm. Of course, the president ultimately is a commander in chief and Congress is wary to even use its power of the purse to direct him in overseas engagements. So really, this is about a political, rhetorical uh, struggle, right? One bit of consensus we can get is for all the naysayers about the Trump in the Trump administration, what his tweet on Syria showed is that President Trump still does wield paramount influence within the Trump administration. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you. And thank you, John. Thank you, Sean. And thank all of you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. <laughs>